this morning before my friend Emily reads the scripture that we'll be focusing on today. I just want to say a prayer over us. God, no matter where we're at, all over this um, Tri-City area in Washington, in the United States, and beyond, God, I pray that right where we're at, you would humble us, open our hearts and our minds and our ears to hear what you would have us to learn from you today. Um, whether we have a relationship with you or we don't. God, I pray that we would leave today in this time of surrender, um, looking more like you and being challenged in our upcoming week. So may we pray. Amen. In Revelation 2, it says, And to the angel of the church of Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you are living, where Satan's throne is, yet you are holding fast to my name, and you did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the people of Israel, so that they would eat food sacrificed to idols and practice fornication. So you have always have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent then. If not, I will come to you soon and make war against them with the sword of my mouth. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To everyone who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give a white stone, and on the white stone is written a new name that no one knows except the one who receives it. Thank you, Emily. I want to welcome you all. Uh, we're in the midst of a series on the seven letters to the seven churches from uh, Revelation chapter 2 through 3. Now, all seven of these churches are dealing with adversity, and Christ has a, a message of encouragement and also a message of admonition uh, for each of these churches. And, you know, it's just incredible to me how pertinent and how relevant the messages are for us today. We started back a couple weeks ago uh, with the church at Ephesus, Christ's message to the church at Ephesus. And the church at Ephesus was incredibly important in the New Testament. And by the time Revelation was written in about 95 AD-ish, um, church at Ephesus was actually a second generation church. Christ tells them that they abandoned the love that they had at first and calls them to turn back, to repent. And that was a foreshadow of what would happen at the church of Ephesus. And, and the story of the church of Ephesus is a tragedy. The church no longer exists. There is no church in Ephesus any longer. It's gone. It died. And I think that's so critical for us right now to hear in the midst of the pandemic, in the midst of 2020, this church at Ephesus, they started out very strong. But little by little, they lost their passion. They lost their zeal. They lost their love for Christ. They lost the love they had at first. And the church died. Matter of fact, this whole region of Asia Minor, these seven churches we're studying, it's now Turkey. Islam has taken over. These churches are gone. And I think that's so important for us to remember as 
we face 2020 is we're in the midst of a pandemic. But we're also in the midst of a larger shift in Christianity. Over the last several generations, more and more people have abandoned the love that they had at first. That love of Christ. I mean, all over the globe, not just the United States. And now, because of the pandemic, all over the world, people are no longer gathering together for worship. And it'd be very easy during this season to just kind of wander away, to abandon. And the tragedy is, you know, a lot of churches most likely will not recover from 2020. But I also believe some churches will grow stronger and stronger throughout this season. Because this is an amazing opportunity to remember what the church was supposed to be in the first place. I mean, Jesus' dream of church had nothing to do with a place that you would go to. I mean, for Jesus, church was a family. It was a community. It was a people. It was a movement that God would work through to bless others, to change, to redeem the world. And 2020 is a call for us to remember and turn back. You know, I think churches that remember their call will thrive. I mean, we sure have. I mean, we'll talk about that at the end of this message. So last week, we moved from about 35 miles from Ephesus to the church at Smyrna. The church at Smyrna, they were suffering. There was no word of condemnation for that church. Just commendation, encouragement, that they would keep going in the midst of their adversity. And we're going to travel 50 more miles today from Smyrna all the way to Pergam, Pergamum, and we're going to find this week and next week's message. They're, they're kind of paired. They have some, some real similarities. Both of them, the message has to do with watering down faith. The beliefs, the behaviors of the world, they're seeping into these churches' beliefs and behaviors. This week we're going to see beliefs of the Christians at Pergamum are, are being tainted by the beliefs of those around them. And next week, we're going to see it's more on behaviors. The behaviors of the church at Thyatira are, are being polluted by the behaviors of the people around them. Technical term is syncretism. Syncretism was a huge issue in the Old Testament, just as it was when Revelation was written in 95 AD, just as it is today. Syncretism happens when cultures and religions intertwine and intermix and their beliefs and their behaviors, they, they change as these religions intertwine. Huge issue in the Old Testament for the Israelites. I don't know if you ever noticed, but Israelites in the Old Testament, they had a really strict diet. And there were foods that they could eat and foods that they could not eat, and very defined. Usually the foods that they couldn't eat were exactly what everybody around them ate, like pork or shellfish. The reason for these very strict food laws in the Old Testament, it was a guard against syncretism. 
the Israelites, they're surrounded by tons of other religions. And, and God didn't want the beliefs of those religions to slip in and to water down the Israelites' faith. And so he kept them very separate. And one of the tools was these food laws. If you followed the food laws of the Old Testament, you couldn't eat dinner with your neighbors. You couldn't socialize with people who are not Israelites. I mean, you don't intermarry with people from other religions, let alone hang out for very long with people of other religions when you can't eat what they eat. The more religions coexist together in a culture, the higher the chance of syncretism. Beliefs, practices just kind of worming their way in and changing a religion's beliefs and practices. That's the heart of what's going on in Pergamum, letter we're studying today. There were many, many gods being worshipped in the areas that these letters were written in in 95 AD, just like today in 2020, United States. You know, 30, 40 years ago, Tri-Cities, like most of the U.S., predominantly Christian. But today, Christians are one of many, many religions in the Tri-Cities. I mean, my grandparents, they lived here 30, 40 years ago. They could go a whole year without interacting with people from other religions. Now, you stop at Starbucks by 8 a.m. You've interacted with 10 different religions right there. Yesterday, I did a Google search of spirituality. I do this every once in a while, and I got 723 million hits just from the word spirituality. Then I added one word to the search parameter, Christian spirituality, brought up 143 million hits. Think about that, just 580 million more hits if you take off the word Christian. How easy would it be for the beliefs and the faith, uh, practices of all of these other spiritualities, how easy would it be for them to seep into our beliefs? This is a huge issue for the seven churches of Revelation back in 95 AD. Especially now that, you know, so many Christians are backing away from their church communities during this pandemic. The less connection we have with other Christians, the less time we spend in God's Word, the less time we study our Bible, the less time we spend in prayer, fellowshipping with other Christians, the more vulnerable we are to syncretism without even knowing it. So let's look at Pergamum. Pergamum, capital of the Roman province of Asia Minor, Pergamum, famous. For all of the temples, just tons of temples built for innumerable gods throughout the city. Pergamum had countless temples, all for worshiping different gods. But there were two in particular that we want to look at to understand what's going on in this letter. And the first was Zeus's temple. Zeus's temple, there was a huge altar to Zeus. It was built on kind of a terraced hill behind the city, and it gave the effect as you came toward the city that you saw the king of the gods, Zeus, sitting on an enormous throne overlooking the city. The animal sacrifices burned 24 hours a day worshiping Zeus. I mean, smoke was seen and smelled for miles before he even got there. 
Now, only small parts of the animals sacrificed to Zeus were actually burned. The rest were sold in the markets in the city. And that's going to be really critical for us to understand what's going on in this letter. But there's another god that was worshipped in Pergamum. Seriously affected the daily life of the early Christians, and that was Caesar. There were temples built for the worship of Caesar, but that's not all. Caesar would visit the city periodically, and a parade would be given in his honor. And everyone would come to worship Caesar at these parades. And it was expected that everyone would show up. Everyone. Why? Well, the more people that showed up for these parades, the more likely it was that Caesar would put money into the city, into the infrastructure. And that meant the local government would pressure people to show up for the parades. But you didn't just show up. You had to bow and worship as Caesar went by. Because Caesar, son of God, the Lord, the one the gods sent to earth to bring about peace. That's how they looked at him. There's something else we need to get about Caesar, though. Pergamum, capital of Asia, was the seat of the governor. Now, Caesar had given the governor of Asia the right of the sword, it was called. The right of the sword. Basically, the ability to inflict the death penalty. Sword was a symbol, power, the power of Caesar, who was known as the son of God who held the power of life and death in his hands. So let's look at the letter. Remember, there's a form that we're following, all of these letters. Uh, They all start with a title for Christ. Christ is speaking the message of the churches. The title for this letter, these are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Christ is saying that the sword of the governor, nothing. I am true justice. I am true righteousness. I am the ultimate judge. I am the one who holds the keys of hell and death. Not Caesar. I am the true son of God. Next, we have the commendation, the good things that are happening in this church. And there are. Revelation 2.13. I know where you are living, where Satan's throne is, Yet you're holding fast to my name. You did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you, where Satan lives. Satan is the deceiver. The church at Pergamum, living where Zeus's throne is, that was the effect of Zeus's temple above the city. He was sitting above the city on his throne, the deceiver's throne. But they weren't being deceived. Now, we don't know who Antipas was. Uh, The only martyr mentioned in the whole book of Revelation, most likely he was killed by the governor who had the power of the sword of Caesar. They really were living in the midst of hostile territory, the early church. But they were holding fast. And and even then, Christ has a word of condemnation for them. We need to listen to it. But I have a few things against you. 
You have some there who are holding to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the people of Israel so they would eat food, sacrifice to idols, practice fornication. So also you have some who hold on to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now there's a whole lot of ideas on who the Nicolaitans are. We don't really have time to get into that. Uh, but we can, we know what the issue was. Balak and Balaam, there are fixtures, figures in the Old Testament. In the short version, Balaam didn't speak against Israel's God, but he led Israel astray. And the people, they started worshiping another God called Baal. And the point is, Balaam was a wolf in sheep's clothing. I mean, he seemed very innocent, but he did a tremendous amount of damage before they even knew what was going on. People didn't realize they were drifting away from God until it was too late. And remember all these animals being sacrificed. Well, some of the meat was burned to Zeus, like I said. The rest, it went to the marketplace. And some of these Christians were saying, it's okay, just go ahead and eat it. And it sounds very innocent, right? Not a big deal. This wasn't just an issue in Pergamum. Paul actually talks to the Corinthians about the exact same thing. And he says, under certain circumstances, you can eat food that's sacrificed to idols. But the deal is, where do you stop? Where's the line? And when do you cross it? I mean, the emperor comes to town and, oh, it's okay to go to the parade. It's okay. Just bow. I mean, it's not really, he's not really a god anyway. We know the true god. The true God knows your heart. It's okay. I mean, think about how this is going to benefit the community. I mean, our money will come back if Caesar is happy. We'll have better roads. We'll have better water systems. Uh, if we just show up to the parade, it'll help the economy. But what do the neighbors and the relatives see? Oh, the Joneses are here. Yeah, I haven't seen them for a while. You know, I heard they started to follow that new unnamed God. You know, they, they call themselves Christians. And uh, they, they renounce all gods. That's what I heard. No, I'm serious. They only believe in one God. Can you believe that? Well, wait. Maybe I was wrong on that because they're eating food sacrificed to Zeus right there. Maybe I got that one God part wrong. I guess... Their God must just be one more of all the gods that we worship. No difference. Now we'll see him next week when Caesar comes to town at the parade. At least some of the Christians at Pergamum are still living lifestyles that are similar to the lifestyles of the people around them. And that's not supposed to happen when you're a Christian at all. Christianity is supposed to be countercultural. And that countercultural lifestyle should be a witness to who our Lord is. But when we end up eating food that's been sacrificed to Zeus, we sacrifice our beliefs little by little by little every day, and we don't even realize how far we have come from the love we had at first. Christianity and culture are supposed to clash. But when you end up making concessions, little here, little there, and we start bowing 
to the symbols of the gods worshipped by the people around us, and we start joining in the sacrificial feast, cars, boats, all the toys, right? Are we any different than our neighbors? What are the foods that our world sacrifices for idols today? And, you know, are, are we eating them? And I don't mean literally, obviously. But when we compromise our faith, even in ways that don't seem to matter, there's always a cost. I mean, syncretism is alive and well. And when we water down our faith and when we start melding our beliefs together, pretty quick you can't tell the difference between Christians and the world around you. Every time we make a concession, the things that we watch, the things that we condone, the things we participate in, the things that we say, we get pulled further and further and further from Christ, which is bad enough on its own, but we damage others as well. Because we are often the only gospel that people will read, our actions. And the world sees us and reads our Facebook posts, right? And sees the things that we set as priorities. The values of Jesus just get watered down more and more by those who call themselves his followers. I mean, Jesus taught us to love our neighbors as ourselves. Jesus taught us to find the lost. Jesus taught us to help those who hurt, to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to give the thirsty a drink of water. He taught us to care about others. He taught us to be humble. He taught us to forgive. He taught us to bless others. Those things are supposed to be the lifestyle of the church. Are we different than the people around us? Do we make decisions that are different from the people around us? Are we reflecting Christ? I mean, does our faith show in our actions that just ways that don't make sense to our neighbors? Or do they just see the same thing they see in the mirror when they look out the window at us? If they do, the message of Pergamum is our message as well. Because they're seeing something wrong. The more Christians blend with society, the more watered down our faith gets the more we start to tell ourselves, oh, it's, it's not a big deal. It's okay. You know, the deeper we sink and the further we find ourselves from Christ. Christ's admonition to the church, verse 216, repent then. If not, I'll come to you soon and make war against them with the sword of my mouth. I mean, repent means just to change your way. We've talked about that. Turn your path, repent. Shuv in Hebrew, metanoia in Greek, you just, you just turn. You turn from where you're going. You turn back to God. Orient yourself toward God, toward the love you had at first. Stop what you're doing. Change your behavior. If not, Jesus says, I'll come soon and make war with the sword of my mouth. 
Remember, Caesar's sword. The sword of Christ's mouth is truth as opposed to the lies that are going on in the territory of Satan, he says. I mean, those who hide behind lies, who seek to distort the truth, who deceive, those whose actions show that they're worshiping at the throne of the deceiver. The scary thing is, it isn't obvious who the deceiver is. Zeus's throne was easy to see. And the fragrance of the burnt offerings, the opulence, you couldn't miss it. It's that easy to get pulled in as you slip further and further and further. Before you know it, you're so far from the mark and pretty soon our lives just look like everybody else. I think in the midst of 2020, as, as, it's, it's not the time to pull away from the church. We need the church more now than ever. How, how do you protect yourself from syncretism? You ensure you're practicing the spiritual disciplines, right? I mean, prayer, communion, community, Bible study, fellowship. We have to center ourselves around these things. I mean, digitally or analog, I, I was really, really pleased. Uh, we had a poll recently, and so many people in our church um, responded, they're doing really well digitally, and I'm glad we're still reaching, but I also understand probably only those who filled out that poll are doing well digitally, just by virtue of how we sent it out. We're trying to find ways that we can continue to worship, can continue to fellowship in person, and, and we've had to make some changes. Um, and in the next couple of weeks, we've uh, spent some time uh, with not only our local health department, but also uh, Olympia. And, and we are going to retool some things that we've been doing. And I want you to understand, I think this will be a good thing for many of us. And, and we are no longer going to have the Wednesday night prayer gathering in person. We're going to continue that digitally. Um, so you can still watch that on Facebook, on YouTube, the Wednesday night prayer gathering. Uh, we are going to have people Sunday morning, but we have some very specific parameters that we have to adhere to. Um, we will have our normal, uh, what we're doing right now, worship, uh, it'll be broadcast from the sanctuary, but we can't have people in here or else uh, worship team, myself, we have to wear our face masks. And we do know by far most people are still going to be joining us digitally. And so what we've come up with, and other churches are doing the same thing, is we're going to have some venues. Uh, we're going to start right across in the teen center. Uh, we'll be broadcasting live. We can have up to 50 people, social distance. We'll have all the parameters set. And you need to RSVP for that. And once we hit uh, 50 people, we'll move to another room and, and another room. And we have a very large campus, and uh, we can do quite a bit. Uh, but I want to invite you, as you feel comfortable, um, to come and join us, but also knowing quite a few people are going to continue worshiping online. We've done so well online, and we want to continue to be able to minister with everyone um, as they are able to. I also want to really hit, man, the small groups. I, that fellowship is so critical. 
There again, we're trying to find ways that, that fit everyone's need. And it's not too late to join a small group. And as Trevor said a couple minutes ago, if you want to contact us, we would love to get you lined up with a small group. I think that's so critical. And our, our men's group and our women's group and our, our young adults and our youth, uh, we have options for all of those. It's so critical right now. We have to show the world the difference Christ makes. And, and, and I think for us to gather together and to celebrate together and to share together and encourage one another. But also, as we worship God with our heads, our hearts, and our hands, we have to make a difference out in the world. So proud of how we've done that in this year. Just from our two offerings alone, uh, we have raised over $90,000 to help support East Kennewick families and also our friends down in Honduras. And then when you couple that with our, just our regular giving that we do, uh, it's well over $100,000. i am just so proud of what we have been able to do uh, throughout 2020. And, and we're not done. There is so much need in this world. There is the spiritual need that we all have. There is also the hurting and the lost who Christ calls us to minister to. I want to invite you to join us, to hold fast. Don't get left behind. We need one another, especially in the midst of this season of life. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, I thank you for your presence. I thank you for your community. I thank you for the call that you have placed upon our hearts, and especially in the midst of 2020. The opportunities that you provide for us to reach out in your name. The opportunities to help the hurting to love our neighbors. Lord, don't let us water down our faith. In your son's name we pray. Amen.